Grace and peace, and welcome to another episode of Your Week with St. Luke's. This is our weekly podcast that sets up and starts the rhythm of the week that we are empowering and encouraging everyone to be in that rhythm of learn, live, love, and lead. And here in our podcast, we want to do some of that learning, that that scriptural study, some of that exegesis, which is not exegesis, it's the, the Greek word that says the pulling out, the, the pulling out of scripture, uh, what God is saying to us. And so we'll be doing that here in our time together, but that we're doing that because it leads us to how we apply these scriptures, how we apply this wisdom that we've we pulled from scripture into our lives. And that causes us to, to live differently, and even more importantly, it calls us to lead our lives differently, which then draws us all back to worship on Sunday morning as we gather together to love God. And in loving God, we're called to love each other, to love our, our neighbors and our enemies as we seek to love God. So we're in our series 23 and we, and so far throughout this year, we've remembered our baptism and doing so, we've remembered that we, the baptism of the Lord, we're remembering that we are baptized and we're allowing our baptismal waters to stir up some holy discontent. Then we looked at Psalms 20 and we were asked more deeply about that holy discontent and what new song is God calling us to sing? And then we've been in Matthew uh, for the last few weeks, starting with Matthew 4, verse uh, 18 through 21. And we've been thinking about what draws us here together to be a St. Luker, to be a, a part of this particular community of faith. Last week, we picked up where we left off, and we were in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 through 25, and we sought to discover where God is at work. And so today we continue in Matthew, but we've skipped ahead a bit to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. But before we uh, get too far into the text, let's start with a word of prayer. And this prayer is uh, a prayer from Benedict of um, Nursia. And Benedict uh, lived uh, from 14, 480, excuse me, 480 to 540. And he uh, was looking to become a hermit, but people kept following him and drawing close around him. So he he's one of the first people that brought together groups of people and giving them a structured way of living that's called the Rule of St. Benedict. Um, and so this, this is a prayer from St. Benedict. Gracious and holy God, give us wisdom to perceive you, intelligence to understand you, diligence to seek you, patience to wait for you, eyes to behold you, and a heart to meditate on you, and a life to proclaim you. Through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so as we're working with our text, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, it's always important to be aware of what's around the text. And we've done this the last few weeks. So let's take a few minutes and pay attention to what comes right before and right after our text for today. 
Last week, we talked about Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 through 25, and now we're in chapter 5, verse 13. So what comes before our text is that gap, chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. And this is the famous Beatitudes. Some people call it the preamble to Jesus's paramount teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So some of your translations will begin uh, verse 1 through, through 12 saying, Blessed are those who are hopeless. Blessed are those who grieve. Uh, the CEB, my translation, says happy. Happy are those who are hopeless. Happy are those who grieve. And Jesus um, begins this preamble with this way and, and this list of beatitudes with this list of blessings that kind of throw us off kilter and cause us to think and feel a bit further, a bit more about how we are to approach what Jesus is going to begin to teach us as he begins the Sermon on the Mount. And it's how he sets the tone for what is coming next with these Beatitudes. What follows directly after our text is Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 5, verse 21. And here Jesus begins a discourse uh, on the people's concept of law, of, of the teaching, of the way, of what's called Torah. You know, verse 21 through 26 is about the law of murder. Verse 27 and 30 is about the law of adultery and so on and so forth. But what's interesting and important to point out that th these texts that follow our text for today, this section of the Sermon on the Mount are are a series of antitheses. And we've preached about this a number of times, but especially last uh, April and May, where Jesus says, I have said to you, and Jesus quotes uh, scripture from the Hebrew Bible. And then once he's done quoting that scripture, he says, but I tell you. See, Jesus gives his teaching, a teaching that is in some cases a stark antithesis of what he quoted from the Hebrew Bible. So that's what comes right after our text. Our text today, then, is that pivot between the Beatitudes and these antitheses, between these, these, this beautiful, poetic, drawing us to think about others more differently and how we behave and interact more differently, and a discourse, these, these antitheses, that cause us to think about Scripture and how we apply Scripture our life more differently. Our text today is that, that pivot, that hinge between this poetic space and this rethinking and interpreting of Scripture space. But all of that may be for another podcast. Um, today we were looking at Matthew 13, um, uh, verse 13 through 20. So I invite you to open your Bibles, uh, however you do that, whether it's uh, a book with pages or an app on your tablet or phone, uh, and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. And I'll be reading from the CEB translation. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. 
A city on a hill on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand, and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously, that as long as heaven and earth exists, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, much like the Beatitudes, these first verses, 13 through 16, may seem quite familiar. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so I apologize for the rest of this podcast, but I'm going to start to geek out and get the Greek out. And I apologize for that horrible pun. But there's so much going on here. This initial you, Hamius, is an emphatic word, both in the choice of using this word, this, this pronoun for you, and in where it is placed. So first, the choice of this word, this, this hamus, uh, for the Greek it, to make sense, you really don't need this word. It's not necessary. So its presence here is almost a, it's a doubling down on the emphasis. It's like when someone ends a sentence that they're typing to you with two or three exclamation points. Or when you receive a text from someone that's in all caps. It's emphatic, and you know it. There's no way around it. You are salt. You are light. One scholar suggests that due to the emphaticness of the you here, one could translate it more faithfully to say, it is you, and not the others, not the Pharisees, not et cetera, et cetera. But you, who are the salt of the earth. It's important to know that in recognizing this emphasis, that the tone is not arrogant, which so many seem to live into such an arrogant space when working to claim their saltiness or their light. But the tone is not arrogant. Because the same text serves later, we get a warning that if disciples deny their mission, this call of Jesus to being salt, 
to being light. If we're not living into our saltiness, if we're not seeking to be of purpose and usefulness, then it goes under the feet of other people. It loses its saltiness. It loses its flavorness. So this you here is absolutely fascinating. Um, the, the indicative uh, is made based on the imperative. I'm not great with English language, um, but what I mean here by that is it's saying when it says you are salt of the earth and you are light of the world, they're presented here without justification. Like, why is this being said? Or even interpretation. How is this possible? What does it mean for us to be salt and light? And what do we, how do we make sense of it? You see, this implicit imperative, this emphatic implicit imperative is more understood in how it's used in the, the, the modifying phrase. You are, you are salt, yes, but for the earth, not for yourself. You are light, but for the world. You are light, not for close friends, not just for your Bible study group, not just for your church, not just for your denomination, not just for your religion. You are to be salt, salt for the world, shine light to all. One of my favorite absolute observations of the you here, and all of this will come together for us, all these pieces, but one of my most favorite uh, observations about the you here is that it is plural. It is corporate. You see, I, I say this oftentimes in, in preaching and talking with people that that there's a plural you in, in Hebrew and there's a plural you in Greek. And so those of us in the South that say, all y'all, we got the Greek right. That's what it's saying here. All y'all. The community as a whole is challenged to fulfill its corporate mission of serving as light of serving as salt for the world. And this mission, this calling, this identification that Jesus gives us, you are light, you are salt. It cannot be accomplished by independent individuals. It can't be accomplished as a solo endeavor. No person is an island. This task, this mission, this vision that we must work together towards to live into this identity more fully, being salt for the world, light for the world, we have to do it together. All y'all are salt. All y'all are light. Another scholar points out how the salt of the earth has become kind of neutered to a way, naturalized in the English language as a designation for people. Y'all might have used this phrase or, or maybe uh, your parents or grandparents as a designation for someone. 
we regard as especially good, right? We'll, we'll say, oh, Sally, you, you got to get to know Sally. She's salt of the earth, right? She's someone who, who you get warm with, who automatically just knows you and gets it, someone you can count on, someone who shows up. But this, the scholar points out that in becoming neutered or becoming this, this natural part of our vernacular in Americana English, it makes it hard to see just how odd of a statement it was for Jesus to say. And so the scholar suggests submitting, uh, substituting with another seasoning uh, to get the force of what Jesus is saying. Something like, y'all are a red hot pepper for the whole earth. Y'all are red hot cayenne seasoning for the whole earth. This kind of helps us remember that the statement, your salt of the earth, refers not to a status, as if it's to say, you are the world's ethical elite, righteous. No, it's not about status. This reminds us that it's about function. You must be zest, flavor, enthusiasm, excitement, energy, passion, compassion, making an impact for the better of those in the world, the whole world, zest to life in this world. You have a purpose. Be useful. Make an impact. We could say much of the same uh, about verse 14. You are the light of the world. And we can make a couple observations about light in the ancient Near East, and especially uh, in ancient Israel. And God was not only the source of light for our daily life, um, like what's found in Psalms 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path, but also God was seen as light itself, such as in Psalms 36, verse 9, in your light, O God, do we see light. And what's further, we can make other observations in New Testament thinkers who, who carry this concept forward uh, and this idea. Like in uh, 1 John, verse 15, we're told God is light and in God is no darkness at all. And of course, in the fourth gospel, John, Christians uh, uh, are ascribing the role of light and God to Jesus when he says, I am the light of the world. No darkness can overcome it. The light metaphor here presents the disciples as illumination for the world. Part of their function and their purpose in life is to illuminate the world. The primary function of light, especially here, is not to be seen, but to let things be seen as they are. Light and darkness, shedding light in darker places. There's a degree of authenticity here. There's also a degree of, of people who are marginalized sitting in the shadows. And we are to shine light. 
we are to to expand the breadth of the beam to make sure that the light of love of Christ shines on all people. No more margins. The light is to embrace all. You see, salt doesn't lose its saltiness in any sort of natural or chemical way. And Jesus knew that. All the people of the ancient Near East knew that. You see, salt loses its saltiness by being diluted, by being mixed with with other elements, so that eventually it loses its function, its place. Imagine taking a cup of salt and adding in a cup of sand and a cup of sugar and a cup of flour and mix it all up. Begins to lose its saltiness. In the same way, Jesus says no one lights a candle, a lamp, and hides it away. When you put it up in a high place so that the beams might shine down, you are light for lighting. So shine. You have purpose. Be salt. Jesus is saying, flavor. Make an impact and difference. You have purpose. Be light. Shine. Let me move to verses 17 through 20. Quite possibly the most difficult passages in in any of the Gospels. And the difficulty starts with the ambiguity and uncertainty of words in the text. Words like destroy, the meaning is quite unclear, and, and especially in how it's situated in the tense it's set in. And, and the word fulfill. Other ambiguity and uncertainty c- continues with tensions between the different clauses in, in our passage and, and in between other passages, what Matthew is saying. What may be important for us here is to, to try to understand the meaning of the word fulfill. Matthew uses this verb through, throughout his gospel typically with respect to the fulfillment of the Hebrew prophecies, the Old Testament prophecies. And in this fulfillment here, in verse 17, is referring to law and the prophets. And so it's helpful here to to remember that. And what's also helpful as we begin to dig a little bit deeper and make a few more observations into verses 17 through 20 is to remember what follows verse 20. This series of antitheses, beginning with verse 21 and finishing out all of chapter 5. So here, in verse 17 through 20, we have a preface to the antithesis. If the Beatitudes is a preface and a preamble to all of the Sermon on the Mount, then Verse 17 through 20 is a, is a preface, is a preamble, is an introduction, is a setting up. It's a lob for the slam dunk of what Jesus is going to do in verses 21 through the rest of chapter 5, these antithesis. You see verse 17 and 20, Jesus saying, I haven't come to abolish the law, the Torah, the way, the teachings but to fulfill them. 
is presenting Jesus as the God-authorized interpreter of the law. Yet so often, we read and interpret text in isolation. And we'll take verse 17 through 20 and do with it what we will. And go on a path of self-righteousness and self-determination. And, and in doing so, minimizing and marginalizing others. But no, no. We can't take these texts in isolation. Verse 17 comes before Jesus calling us to be salt and light to the world to make an impact, to shine light of goodness and grace. And verse 17 and 20 comes right before. It's the preface to these antithesis, setting him up. Again, as that God-authorized interpreter of the law. Because Jesus continues to teach and preach from here to quote a Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, and then say, but I tell you, and then he interprets Torah. He interprets law, the teaching, the way, in a very different way than has been taught and interpreted before. And so here he is saying, I haven't come to abolish, to do away with the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, to illuminate them, to shed light on, and to enlighten you who are in turn to be light to the world, who are in turn to be zest, flavor, to make an impact to the world. And all this week as we're reading these scriptures, we're thinking about and preparing our hearts and minds for, for purpose. What is our purpose what is God calling this community faith in this new season, our purpose to be? What does it mean to be saltiness in this next season at St. Luke's? What does it mean to shed light in this next season at St. Luke's? To be a part of the community of faith. I want to close this with uh, another, another prayer. This one's from John Cassian, who was a little bit older than, than Benedict. He was born in six, uh, 360 and died in 435. Hear this prayer. O God, be all my love, all my hope, all my striving. Let my thoughts and words flow from you. My daily life be in you, and every breath I take be for you. Amen. Grace and peace, my beloved friends, and I look forward to seeing you on Sunday as our new bishop, Bishop Tom Berlin, is coming to preach on these texts. We'll see you then. <laughs>